Well, good morning, Cross of Life. Thank you for letting me join you virtually. Uh, this weekend, I am up in Ottawa, uh, actually at my childhood congregation, the congregation that I was baptized and uh, grew up into. Uh, they are calling a new pastor this weekend, and I get to be uh, the person who runs the call leading for them as the circuit pastor. So I appreciate your service to the kingdom uh, here in Ontario by uh, letting me be away for the Sunday. Uh, thank you to all of you who are just making worship happen while I'm gone and uh, welcoming any of those uh, folks who are maybe visiting with us today. Obviously, I can't see you, but uh, I'm, I'm thankful that you get to meet our people. Uh, I'm the pastor. My name's Caleb, if you have not met me. And uh, I'm glad I get the chance to continue our, our study of the book of Luke together. We're in Luke chapter 7. You had heard the text read just a couple moments ago. And last week, I said that uh, this text that we're studying this Sunday has to be read in tandem with the text that we studied last Sunday. So this is a pretty common thing that the Gospels will do. They will uh, teach something that Jesus said. And then they will give an example in a narrative form of that teaching being played out practically. And that seems to be what's happening here with chapter 7. Uh, we get a teaching last week about God's word, and then we see it playing out in the story of this Pharisee and this woman who meet Jesus. So just for the sake of continuity between the two texts, I want to go back and just review for you um, what, the, what happened last week so we can kind of get the flow studying this week's text. Last week, we said that Jesus was giving straight talk to people, and that straight talk was about both the law, which is God's demands on people, and the gospel, which is God's forgiveness or God's salvation, God's acquittal, God's freedom for people. On the one hand, God says very clearly that all people are sinful. No one can save themselves. No one is good enough for God. No one can pull it off. No one can be enough. And that is a hard message for some of us to hear because we want to believe that we are enough. We want to believe that we can we can work hard enough, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, say the right things, do the right things, be the right type of person, and then we'll be okay. And we, we show that in, in many different aspects of our lives, how we run our relationships, how we parent our children, how we work at our job, how we put, put, uh, present ourselves on, on social media. I mean, any of these number of things can be our our mechanism, our, our religion in a sense, to save ourselves, to justify ourselves, justify our own existence. But the law says very clearly, no, that does not justify you. That is not good enough. And on the other hand, the gospel is an equally stark and challenging word, even though it immediately sounds like good news, which it is, it can challenge us, right? The gospel is that every person is completely free, forgiven in Jesus, not because of their works, not because of anything inherent about themselves, not because they're pulling it off or have cleaned their life up or have said the right words or said the right prayers or lit the right candles or done the right tasks, but simply because Jesus saves people. And that's, I think, challenging for us on a personal front because it means that like, we have no part to play in our own salvation. And, and again, that's hard because we want to believe that we can do something to add to our salvation. We can make ourselves a good Christian. That's not true. God makes you a good Christian, and you live out of that reputation. You, you already are that because of what Jesus has done, and now you live like it. And it's also challenging for us as we think about other people, right? The gospel means that the people that we would maybe not expect to be good by the world's standards are loved and accepted and brought in in Jesus, and so when, when we see somebody that maybe we wouldn't forgive or we would at least expect that they would have a heartfelt apology to everybody for what they did, that God forgives that person. That he totally and freely forgives that person and loves them dearly. And, and we talked about this last week about how like it's really hard for us because we either like reject one or the other or both of those messages. 
and, and we do it at different times in our lives. Then we get to see that played out in this text. We actually get to meet a, a person who gets that, who understands the law on their life and the gospel in their life. And we get to see a person who doesn't. And as you probably could figure out as reading the text who those people are, the woman is the one who understands law and gospel, understands those messages that Jesus brings. And the, the Pharisee, Simon, is the one who doesn't. So what I want to do today is walk us back through the text and just make sure we understand what's going on because there's a number of cultural things that maybe don't come across right away to us as modern Western people going on in the text. And, uh, and then after that, I want to kind of give us some application points based on each of the characters. So we'll look at Simon for a bit, we'll look at the woman, and then we'll finally look at Jesus. So what's going on in this text? Um, this starts with uh, the Pharisee inviting Jesus over for dinner. Uh, now, this is something, of course, that we still do in our society. We invite people over for dinner, and it's a way that we can honor them, especially if they're important to us. But this was a, a second-level sort of thing in their culture. It was more than just, well, I'm going to invite my friends over for dinner. Because in their culture, you couldn't just bring somebody out to a five-star restaurant if they were a celebrity in your community. Uh, you would have them over to your house, but you would have them over to your house not just for a social dinner, but for something of a, a performance dinner, if you will. So there would be invited guests to these dinners, and they would all sit at the table. And by the way, when I say sit, I mean like they would actually lie on their sides um, with their feet out. So we think of sitting at a table as like I'm sitting right now, you know, upright on a chair, my feet are underneath the table. They would sit kind of lying on their side with their feet out, which explains, by the, by the way, why this woman has access to Jesus' feet so that she can cry on them and wipe the, her tears with her hair. Um, so they're all there, there's invited guests, and they're eating together, but then this would also be an opportunity for, if there was a, a celebrity-type person in the in the dinner guests, for them to share what they have to say, whether it's they have, you know, some great teaching that they need to share, or, or some sort of, you know, insightful thing that they, they've learned, um, that they would have a, a moment for that, and that seems to be what's going on here with the Pharisee and Jesus. The Pharisees generally don't like Jesus in the Gospels, um, but it seems that this Pharisee at least wanted to invite Jesus over kind of as a celebrity guest for his dinner party. Uh, the second layer of this is that while there were invited guests to dinner, dinner parties like this, it was also generally accepted that people from the public could come and observe the dinner party. So they wouldn't be invited guests, there wouldn't be places for them at the table, but they could stand around and listen to the conversation. And uh, if you think that's weird, just remember that that's exactly what we do when we watch the news or we listen to podcasts. <laughs> we're, we're watching other people have conversations and we're learning something from those conversations, right? So the common people could come in if there's a celebrity teacher and listen to him teach. So that's kind of the context that we have here uh, with, with Jesus and the Pharisee. And, and as they're at this dinner party, a, a woman comes in and the Bible says that she is a sinful woman. Um, now, literally, the Greek says she is a woman of the city who was sinful, and that leads most commentators to say that's probably a euphemism for her being a prostitute. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but uh, it seems to fit with the way that she's treated in the text, and it seems to make sense, even as we have uh, idioms like that for prostitutes in our own culture. We might say like a, a woman of the nights or, or something like this, right? So she comes into the text, and uh, she gets at Jesus' feet, and she's crying on his feet, and she's wiping his feet with her hair, and she also has a jar of perfume that she uses to put perfume on Jesus' feet. And, and we have to focus on this, um, this, 
this jar of perfume for a moment because there's really one of two things that that jar could be. And uh, we don't know for sure, but both of them have interesting applications, which we'll get to in the application section. But for now, just let me kind of explain what's going on here. On the one hand, this alabaster jar could be something like a little vial. You know, think about it almost like this big, and it would be hung around the neck on a string. There would be a little opening at the top, and that would allow the perfume that's inside the vial um, to not spill out of the vial because the opening would be too small, but it would be wide enough that the smell from the perfume could come out of the bottle. And it would be kind of like wearing perfume all the time, right? But never wasting it. Think of like how we use maybe a candle warmer in our houses. We don't actually burn the candle, but we get the scent from the candle. So on the one hand, that's what she could have been doing, and she could have broken that and put the ointment, uh, the perfume, excuse me, on Jesus' feet. On the other hand, it could have been something that we might actually think of as a jar, and maybe it would only be about the size of a baseball or even smaller, but it would have been a, a thing that contained perfume that you actually could take out and you could use on your skin if you wanted to, but most people didn't. And the reason was, uh, this was a really good way to retain um, monetary value without holding on to cash. So in their society, they didn't have banks where they could put all their excess money. And so what people would do would be to put that money into assets that would be easy to transport and would not easily lose their value. And so this is very common. People would uh, put their money into something like a jar of perfume, especially expensive perfume. That way they weren't carrying around, you know, essentially thousands of dollars. They would just carry around this little jar of perfume. And if they ever needed to get more cash, they could liquidate it and, and have the cash that they needed. Now, both of those have interesting applications. We'll get there, but for now, I just want you kind of to know that that's what is probably going on with her perfume here that she's pouring on Jesus' feet. Um, now, the whole scene, of course, is super dramatic. It, it, it's dramatic in their culture. It would have been dramatic in our culture. Um, first of all, just because of the behavior of this woman, right? Like, uh, it's still kind of weird for us to just have somebody crying in public. Even if we care deeply about the person, like, we're all a little bit uncomfortable if we see somebody crying in public. It's just a, a normal thing. But then she's not only doing that, she's interrupting this dinner party, which was like a swanky to-do in their town. Um, this is like, if I give you an analogy, it's like a streaker going through a, a sporting event. And, and if you think I'm saying that just for the humor, I kind of am. But I'm also making that comparison because uh, when a woman would let her hair down, that was a sign of being in the presence of intimate closeness. So like in their culture, a woman would really only let her hair down in the presence of her husband. And to have her hair down in the presence of anyone but her husband, on the one hand, could be seen as uh, a sign of, of sexual promiscuity, right? right? Like that this is me kind of showing myself to be available sexually. Um, so this woman has her hair down. She's using her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, doing something that would have been totally scandalous in, in their society. And of course, everybody there is weird and uncomfortable about it, including specifically Simon the Pharisee. And, and we get it, a little window into Simon's thoughts in the text uh, where it, it tells us that Simon was thinking, well, if this guy, Jesus, knew who this woman was, knew what kind of things she had done, he would not be allowing her to touch his feet this way. Therefore, he must not be a prophet. Sorry, he must not be a prophet. Um, now, Jesus, of course, knows that this is what Simon is thinking because Jesus is God and God knows our thoughts. And so, so he tells Simon a story. He tells a story about two men who owed money to a specific money lender. And uh, one of the men owned 50 denarii and the other one owed 500 denarii. A denarius uh, was uh, one day's wages. So you could probably say these are two men, one of them owes about two months worth of wages and the other one owes about two years worth of wages. So you kind of put that in your own terms, how much money you make over a, a month or a year. And he says that the, the money lender forgives both of these guys who have debts. 
And so Jesus asks Simon, okay, which one of these guys, the guy who owed two months worth of salary or the guy who owed two years worth of salary, which one of those guys do you think would love Jesus, or excuse me, love the, the money lender more? So which one would be more thankful? And Simon actually gives us an interesting insight into his own thoughts again when he answers this question, I suppose the one who had more debt forgiven. Uh, that, that phrase, I suppose, seems to be something of resignation on Simon's part. Like he kind of knows that he, he, he can get where this is going. Like he feels like, oh yeah, I should have kind of known better uh, as he answers this question. Uh, Jesus, of course, just keeps going and says, yep, exactly. You're right, Simon. The one who had more debt forgiven is the one who would be more thankful, who would love the moneylender more. And then he turns his attention to the woman and says, Simon, do you see this woman? Now, Jesus could just be saying, like, let's just look at her for a second. Let's just, like, draw our attention to her. But I don't, I wonder if, if Jesus wasn't doing something a little bit more with that word see. Um, like, wondering if, if he was saying to Simon, Simon, like, you, you saw this woman come in. You watched her come in. You've been looking at her constantly ever since she's been in the room. But let me ask you, do you actually see her? But do you see her as a real person? Or do you see her as a category? Like, she's just a woman of the city who is sinful to you. She's not a real person. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus is saying here when he says, do you see this woman? But I can't help but think that at least that heart is behind what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus makes a comparison. He says, look, Simon, this woman has been at my feet, wetting my feet with her tears, wiping her feet with, my hair, with her hair. She has been kissing my feet and she has been pouring perfume on my feet. And Simon, you did not give me water to wash my feet when I came in. You did not greet me with a kiss, and you did not anoint my head with oil. Now, these would have been just common pleasantries, especially for a, a guest of honor, to let them wash their feet because they walked around in sandals all day on unpaved roads, so their feet were nasty and dirty, and so it was common to give uh, a person the ability to wash their feet when they came into the house. Uh, a kiss was a common way for a person to be greeted in that society, and an anointment of oil on the head was kind of a mark that this person was special, that there was an honor due them when they were in the house. And it seems that Simon had, had done none of these things. And yet this woman runs in, breaks into this, this party, and does all these things for Jesus. And so Jesus says, um, look, the reason that she's behaving this way, Simon, and you didn't, is because she recognizes that her sins are forgiven. Right? The, the way he says in, in the text is, um, therefore I tell you, her many sins are forgiven, just as her great love has shown in other words, he says, not um, her sins are forgiven because she ran in here and she did all these things. But the fact that she ran in here is indicative of the fact that she is forgiven. Right? So maybe a, a way to say this is, um, like, if you went outside and you saw that the parking lot was wet, you could say it rained, right? You may not be able to see the rain and you wouldn't say that the, the parking lot was what caused the rain, but you would say, the results show me what happened previously. And so this is what Jesus is saying to you. He's saying, this kind of behavior is indicative of somebody whose sins have been forgiven. And then he turns to the woman, and he says it again. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now that's really interesting, and we'll, we'll circle back to that. So just mentally make a note of that um, right here. And then finally, he, he finishes this by saying, your faith has saved you, go in peace. His point again being emphasizing that it's not the actions that got her sins forgiven. It's not the perfume and the tears and the hair and the kisses. It's her faith. It's her trust that Jesus is here to forgive sins that has saved her. And then he says, of course, go in peace, knowing that there is no more conflict between her and God. 
So that's what happens in the text. Now let's make a couple applications. And, and the way I want to structure this is by following each of the characters and just thinking through their mindset in this narrative. Uh, and the first character I want to look up at, look at is Simon the Pharisee. Um, Simon the Pharisee is obviously a very morally upstanding person. He's a Pharisee. That was kind of part of their deal. They weren't uh, called um, clergy, kind of like we would think of pastors today. They were sort of like uh, upstanding members of the lay community, right? So they would be uh, like your, your leadership team sort of type people in a congregation today. Um, so they were the people who were exemplary of their behavior, the type of people you wanted to be around, the type of people who would be great neighbors. He invites Jesus over. And what's interesting about this is based on not just the fact that he invites Jesus over, but then also how he treats Jesus when he comes into his house in comparison to the woman, we can tell that this Pharisee had a skewed view of himself. Um, as far as he was concerned, he was a pretty good person. And he wanted Jesus to be around, but not because he needed his sins forgiven, not because Jesus was his savior from sin and death and hell, but because it made him look good. But he was the one who was going to be able to say to his friends and neighbors, hey, I'm having Jesus over to my house this weekend. Like, do you want to come and see? He was the one who threw, or threw out the red carpet, so to speak, for Jesus. And I wonder if there's something in that for us to learn. Uh, it's really easy in a, in a modern society where so much about our culture is about building yourself up and building up your own self-esteem, telling yourself you're a pretty okay person, that for many of us, Jesus can be kind of an accessory. He's, a, he's really nice to have around. He maybe even builds something of our, our self-esteem or social clout, especially maybe with our family, if our family grew up Christian. We can want to be around Jesus, but not because we see him as our savior from sin. We see him as something that can add value to our life, but he is not the value of our life. So this can look like any number of things. I mentioned a couple of them already, but maybe you consider Jesus helpful to me because he gives me guidance for how to live my life. That's true, but that's not the main thing that Jesus does. Or, or maybe you can say, um, Jesus just helps me feel better about myself. Well, true, but that's not, again, the point of what Jesus is here for. Or maybe uh, Jesus allows me to check uh, a check mark on a census form that basically says I'm a Christian, right? I, I can say to my friends and neighbors, well, I believe in Jesus, and so therefore I'm a Christian. When Jesus says that being a Christian is far more than just identifying with him, it's about hearing his words, believing his words, and producing his words. So I think for every one of us, we have to reflect on, on that kind of stance that, that the Simon has towards Jesus. That he sees Jesus as a nice thing to have in my life, but not the thing I need in my life. Oh, one pastor gave it to me as an illustration like this. It's kind of like healthy eating, right? Like healthy eating, we all know is a good thing. Um, but for most of us, healthy eating is something we do insofar as it's convenient, right? Like if I'm at the grocery store and the prices are all the same and the ease of preparing the food is all the same, well then, yeah, I guess I'll eat the healthier thing because I know that healthy food is good. But if it requires me to work hard or to pay extra money or, or to go out of my way to go to a different store that might have more healthy food for whatever reason, um, we find that hard and we'll say, well, I'll eat as healthy as I can, but I'm not going to obsess my life over eating healthy because we kind of think, well, I'll just be, I'll be fine. I mean, I'd be as good as I could be, but I'll be fine if I don't eat healthy. And unfortunately, especially in North America, that tends to be a, a default setting for a lot of people when it comes to Jesus. Like, Jesus is good. I'd like to have Jesus around. And, and all things being equal, I probably would choose Jesus over other activities or things that I want to think about or do. But we won't go so far as to obsess our lives over Jesus. 
to be willing to, to sacrifice things in our lives for Jesus, to, to choose not to, to work at certain places, to hang out with certain people, to do certain things because of Jesus. This is the problem for, for Simon. He sees Jesus as an accessory to his life, not the centerpiece of his life. Simon also doesn't have uh, just a wrong view of Jesus. He also has a, a wrong view of this woman. Um, he sees this woman entirely for, from a worldly point of view. Now, regardless of whether Jesus really did mean when he said, do you see this woman, that, that Simon ought to like actually look at her, regard her as, as a person and not just a category, that truth is true throughout the rest of Scripture. And it is something that Jesus exemplifies for us. Jesus cares particularly about each individual person. Right? For, for us, or for Jesus, we are not in categories for him. We are individuals whom he loves and whom he died for. But when it comes to human beings, categorizing people is a really easy thing for us to do. And from a purely psychological point of view, it makes sense. Um, it, it just makes life simpler and easier to mentally manage. So let me give you an example of this. Um, maybe if you're organizing your silverware drawer at your house, uh, you might have a slot for spoons and a slot, slot for forks and a slot for knives. And maybe you'll label those things. You'll say forks, knives, and spoons. And you start to divide your silverware into those things. But, but then you realize that there are different types of forks and different types of spoons and different types of knives. There are big forks and small forks and serving sports, uh, forks. And there are big spoons and soup spoons and, and, and teaspoons and serving spoons. And there, there are butter knives and bread knives and steak knives and all these different types of things that fit into these larger categories. For the sake of simplicity, you might just shove all of the knives, regardless of their individual characteristics, into the knife slot. And that might be fine for your house because you don't always need to figure out what exactly you're looking for in a knife before you go into the knife drawer, right? You can figure it out once you get there. But we tend to do the same kind of thing with people. Rather than look at each individual person and take them as an individual person, look at their characteristics, assume that they have a background and a history and struggles and, and their own you know, psychological things they're going through, we tend to categorize them. And I think the easiest way for people to do this is usually by like something like uh, your demographic status. So, you know, they're this type of person because they're in this generation, right? They're this age or, or they're this type of person because they're in this kind of socioeconomic status. They're a rich person, so they must be like this. Or they're a poor person, so they must be like this. And of course, this can happen with men and women and different races and, and all these sorts of things. Um, but it's so easy for us to do that because it's just simpler. Right, again, go back to your silverware drawer. It's easier to just have three slots for forks, spoons, and knives. It is far more complex and it's gonna take up way more space in your kitchen to have an individual slot for every type of knife and fork and spoon. And so it's a challenge for us because we want things to be simple. We don't wanna spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out each individual person. And so we tend to categorize people. But what God calls us to be as Christians is caring of each individual person, to see them in a sense. And that requires the hard work of, first of all, seeing that every single person, regardless of whatever demographic they fit into or whatever characteristics they have, is sinful before God and therefore in need of a Savior desperately. Like, that's where kind of the rubber hits the road, at least at first, between Jesus' teaching from last week and this week's teaching. If you understand the law, the law being Every single person, whether they're rich or poor or white or black or old or young or male or female or anything in between, is deeply in need of, of a savior from their sin, then it becomes harder to assume that a person is just this way because they're that type of person. Right? You look at each person and you actually have intense compassion for them because you see that they are de desperately in need of a savior. 
And the gospel does this to you as well, because then you also see that they are deeply loved by Jesus and that they, they need to hear about his salvation that is offered to them. And so my question for us, as we just think about this text is, how do we do that in our own lives? When we think about the people who don't go to Cross of Life, for example, is it easy for us to categorize them? You know, non-believers, right? Um, or maybe we'll, we'll subdivide that a little bit, but we'll say things like, you know, Muslim, right? Or member of the LGBTQ community or atheists or something like this. It's very easy for us to categorize people and make a whole bunch of assumptions about them and how they operate rather than simply seeing them as a human being who truly is deeply flawed because of the sin that corrupts every single person, but is also deeply loved by Jesus. And then I want us to think uh, more about ourselves. When we look at the people in our congregation, do we have caricatures of each other? Uh, do we say, well, they're just those type of people because, I don't know, they've been in the congregation that long, or they're in a position of leadership, or they're friends with that person, or whatever the thing may be. Is it easy for us to categorize people rather than realizing that those people are, are real individuals with real struggles that they're going through themselves? And that actually the law and the gospel should lead us to a deep sense of compassion um, for these people. I think that's what Simon needed to learn, and I think it's something that we also can think about as well. Um, the, the last thing I want to say with Simon is that he not only sees himself and the woman from the wrong point of view, but he ultimately sees Jesus from the wrong point of view uh, in this way as well. Uh, he makes an assumption about Jesus because of the woman, right? So he connects these two people that he sees wrongly and makes a, a faulty assumption about them. And this point, I think, is primarily directed at people who would say um, that, that they, they want to be Christians, but they don't really need a connection with the church, Okay, um, so recently I was talking to a young person who uh, does not want to be part of a Christian church. And the reason that they, they cited was they see Christians um, being far too judgmental. Now, we could have a whole talk about that. In fact, I, I preached a sermon back uh, in 2020 on that. Uh, you can look up the Questioning Christianity series. But the point of bringing that story up is to say this. Uh, very often, people make a judgment about Jesus based on his church. And Simon is doing that exact same thing here. He is making a judgment about Jesus based on the type of people who are attracted to Jesus. Right? He sees this woman and he sees the type of sinner that she is. And he says, well, Jesus must not be a prophet then. You see the connection? I, I see something in this woman. Therefore, I make an assumption about Jesus. This is so common. And it might be easy for us to just say, well, that's what you know people out there do. They look at the church and they say the church is, is bad and therefore you know, Jesus must be, must be bad. But I think even those of us who are within the church, we, we have a tendency to do that same sort of thing. Um, we tend to, uh, you know, think about, well, I want to be part of this church because people are nice in this church, right? We tend to make a judgment about Jesus based on the people who Jesus attracts. Um, and I want to challenge us on this because uh, if that's the way we're going to look at being together as a congregation, we are always going to be disappointed for the same reason that Simon was disappointed. This woman was not the type of person who was nice and would be the type of person you'd invite to a, a swanky dinner party. No, she was she was dirty by his standards, unclean ceremonially, not the type of person she he wanted to hang out with. And I wonder if sometimes we have the same kind of attitude towards the people that we worship with. Right? We look at them and we say, well, I don't really like their personality or I don't really like their values or I don't really like the way they carry themselves or I don't like that thing that they said. And therefore I say, I'm not going to be part of this church anymore. When you see what you're doing. You're, you're looking at the characteristics of a person that is attracted to Jesus, and then you're making a, a, a decision about Jesus. 
right? And, and before somebody says, well, I can go to another church and, and get Jesus, sure. But, but as far as I'm concerned, there's no other church that teaches exactly what we teach other than our, our sister church in Hope in the Toronto area. And that's not to say that other churches don't teach the gospel. But my point is saying, like, if you love this church for what we teach, and you make a decision about coming to this church because of people, do you see the disconnect that you're making? You're making the same kind of assumption that Simon makes. Now, that is not to say that we should ignore conflict in our congregation. We need to talk about that. It actually is a compliment to Cross of Life. I think Cross of Life is a congregation where these things do get talked about, and I love that. The conversations are challenging, and they're, they're emotional, but they are so healthy when we can come to one another in love and confront one another with our sin or hurt feelings or offense that is given, and then still want to be together because we trust in something bigger than just our ability to get along. We trust in Jesus. We're here for Jesus. And, and the very fact that Jesus is offering free grace, forgiveness of sins to people, should make us expect that the type of people who are going to be attracted to Jesus are people who recognize that they are deeply flawed and that they have issues, they have sins, they have things that they're struggling with. Uh, maybe one last thought on this, an illustration. And I think I've used it before, but it's good for us to think about. Um, imagine you, you meet a guy at work and he's a really cool guy. You really like him. You get along really well. And so one night you invite him out. Let's go, let's go get a drink together. And so you go out to the bar, you have another good time. And, and at the end of it, he says, Hey, you should come over to my place and, 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 uh, meet my family next weekend. Why don't you come over for dinner? So you do, you go over to dinner at his house and, uh, you meet his wife and his wife is kind of weird. Like she's not very attractive and she's not very friendly and she doesn't really help prepare dinner and she doesn't ask you anything about yourself. She kind of just plays in her phone the whole time that you're there. She doesn't even walk you to the door when you leave. And you go back to your car and you're thinking to yourself like, why is he with her? <laughs> and the answer is not something about her, it's something about him. That he chooses to love somebody who is not good by the world's standards. In fact, when you come to a church and you see people who are messed up, that actually teaches you something really cool about Jesus. That Jesus is being preached as the savior of sinners, the savior of prostitutes, the savior of people who have messed up their life royally or know that they are capable of messing it up royally. Like when you come here and you meet sinners, that's good news because Jesus attracts sinners. Okay, so we talked about Simon. Um, let's talk about the woman. Um, she is a perfect example of the relationship between repentance, faith, and works, which is the theme of, of this sermon. Uh, because it's very obvious from both the way the narrative plays out and uh, what Jesus says that she was a believer before she comes in and has this episode with the hair and the tears and the kisses and the, the perfume. She obviously had heard the message of Jesus somewhere, and because she knew that that forgiveness was for her, she ran to Jesus and gave these actions. Uh, and the first thing you notice about that is um, her, uh, save, uh, her salvation came by faith. And Jesus says this, of course, in the text. He says, your faith has saved you. Right? She believed that what Jesus was giving to the world was for her. Now, I know I've made this point a number of times, but for you is what some theologians will say is the essence of the gospel, or what another a pastor I listened to this week said is the essence of faith. Faith is understanding that the gospel is for everybody and it's for me, right? It's specifically for me. A lot of people can confess the idea of the gospel and say, well, Jesus forgives all sins, yes. But the question is, do you believe that's true for you? Do you believe that that you are so deeply flawed that you need the death of the Son of God, like that's the only sufficient price that will pay for your soul, and that you have it, that the Son of God did die for you and rose again to guarantee you justification. That's faith. 
when, when you understand that that actually is for you in your life. And that's what this woman uh, says uh, by, by her actions, right? Um, now her faith, like I said, leads her to a certain behavior. And uh, I think there's two notable things that happen here when it comes to uh, her behavior. Uh, the first has to do with how she treats Jesus. So I mentioned um, the, the alabaster jar of perfume could either have been a little vial that hung around her neck or it could have been a little jar that was sort of like a, an investment asset in your portfolio. Um, either way, we get something really interesting about what faith motivates us to do as Christians. So let's first just play out the idea that maybe it's a vial that's around her neck. The reason most likely that she had it hanging as a vial around her neck was because it was part of her occupation. Um, part of being a prostitute, of course, is to try to look attractive. And in that culture, one of the most attractive things you could do is smell nice because with very little bathing uh, available for people, people kind of smell bad. And so if you smelled good, that was a sign that you were, well, at, at least attractive, if not very wealthy also. And so people would, would be more attracted to a woman, of course, if she smelled nice. And so uh, what some commentators will say is this vial was actually sort of a marker of her occupation as a prostitute. Now think about what she does with it. She has to break it in order for it to open up so she can get the perfume out and put it on Jesus' feet. And what does that mean? It's at least symbolically insinuating that she is giving up her occupation as a prostitute because of what Jesus has done for her. And that's something for us to consider um, because it is so easy, again, to think that, that I can be a Christian, but I don't really have to give anything up to be a Christian. The discipleship is about mostly knowing some intellectual thoughts and being able to fill out the right answers on a test. But it's not about a practice of going through my life and saying, what things in my life are interfering with my relationship with, me, with Jesus and my ability to love my neighbor? In her case, it's very obvious. And, and I don't think it takes a biblical scholar to figure out like, okay, well, if you're a prostitute, you should probably not be a prostitute. It's pretty clear that way. It's less clear when we have a job that maybe even does something really good, right? We add value to a person's life, but that job is maybe keeping us away from worship on Sunday morning, or that job is keeping us so busy that we don't have time to be in our Bible regularly at home in a devotion, or maybe in a Bible study regularly with other people. Or that our job is keeping us so busy that we don't have the chance to volunteer to help people in our community or to adequately parent our children up in the faith. Um, th those could be examples of how with the, the, the domain of employment, we can get kind of distracted away from, from loving Jesus. Uh, another thing could be, of course, your relationships. You know, if you're hanging out with a certain type of people, which this woman would have been hanging out with a certain type of people, but once you become a Christian, you maybe don't hang out with those people, at least in the same way. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should not have non-Christian friends. That, that is absolutely false. In fact, part of our call as Christians is to be embedded in this community who doesn't know, of people who don't know Jesus. My point is to say, what's your relationship with those people? Is your relationship, they are my best friend? Well, then maybe you should check yourself on that because the Bible's pretty clear that Christians really are only supposed to have close, dependent relationships on other Christians. Now, that might mean that you're not going to be able to hang out with uh, the same people in the same way that you have before. And that's hard because we have relationships and they're valuable to us. But are they adding to our faith? Are they growing us in Jesus? Or, or are they, they pushing us away from him? Uh, causing us to question him? Causing us to think, 
well, what's wrong with the church? What's wrong with my theology? Rather than to say, I want to fall deeply in love with Jesus for what he's done for me. And you can play out a, a thousand different examples of this, right? As we make our lifestyle choices, I just want every one of us to consider, does this lifestyle choice allow me to grow more deeply in my relationship with Jesus? Or does it allow me to more uh, effectively love my neighbor? Right? Am, I, am I finding opportunities to do good for real people in the world? Uh, on, this, on the other hand, if it isn't this little vial that's hanging around her neck, it's this little alabaster jar that is essentially an investment uh, asset. And she, again, has to pour this out on Jesus. Now, we know from other uh, places in the Bible that when the disciples saw another woman do something very similar, that uh, particularly Judas Iscariot, who was the keeper of the money among the disciples, was irritated at this because he said, well, this could have been used to feed the poor, right? Why is she wasting this much money just trying to worship Jesus? And I think that's something for us to consider because, uh, first of all, it is important for us to love God with our resources. And faith and knowing that God because he was rich and yet for our sakes became poor so that we might become rich, expects us to use the riches that we do have to bless other people in the same way that Jesus used his spiritual riches to bless us spiritually so that we can have everything we need at all times. And so like we should think about our faith acting itself out and using our resources to bless other people. Uh, the other thing that's really cool about this is in her case, and in the case uh, of the other woman who Judas gets irritated at, uh, their way of expressing giving up their wealth for Jesus is to just use it in, in pure worship of Jesus, right? The, the perfume goes on Jesus' feet, and that's the end of the perfume. Like, it's not useful anymore. Um, but the beautiful thing about offerings in the New Testament for us is that our offerings are an act of worship towards God, thankfulness to him for what he has done for us, but they are also there to bless our neighbor. Right? Those offerings don't just get burned on the altar or poured out on the ground. They get used to make sure that ministry advances here in Mississauga, to support missions across the world, to train pastors and teachers, to, to do benevolence work with people in our community or in our congregation and support them when they're in need. Um, your offerings go to do something. And so as we think about the relationship between faith and works, we ought to say one of the marks of a Christian is that they are going to be generous with their resources. Now, now, we need to take a moment uh, on this to meditate a little bit deeper because uh, last week we had a letter from our treasurer that went out regarding offerings in our congregation. And uh, it was a challenging letter. And uh, while I don't disagree necessarily with anything that was said in our treasurer's letter, I think it's worth clarifying, especially in light of this text, what he and what we as Christian leaders are trying to communicate to us as a congregation. Um, when we look at our resources, we first ought to realize that God has given us all of our resources. Everything that we have comes from God. And yet everything that we have pales in comparison to the surpassing greatness of God's grace to us, to save us from our sins and to give us everlasting life. And when we know both of those things, we have to say, my resources have a purpose in my life. But I know on the one hand that they can be replenished by the God who loves me more deeply than any person has ever loved me. And that if I would give generously of my resources, even if I'm up against it in a sense financially, that my God would take care of me. Because as, as the book of Romans says, uh, he who did not spare his own son, but actually gave up his son so that you could live forever, how's he not going to care about all the other stuff? Right? Like if he was willing to give up his own life for you, you think he doesn't care when you ask for your daily bread? 
He does. He deeply cares for you. Uh, another aspect of this I think we need to think about is that every single person who hears a message like this hears it from a different context. So for some of you, you haven't really thought about financial struggle for maybe years. You've always just had mostly enough money to do the things that you want to do. Some of you feel like you're financially up against the ropes because you're worried that you're not going to be able to pay the bills. You're not going to buy the, be able to buy the groceries that you need. I mean, inflation is real and it's hitting everybody and, and maybe you're feeling that. And there are some of you who, you know, you could, you're doing fine, but you got big aspirations and big goals. And you want to buy a house. You want to stay in this community. You want to you know, support your parents. You want to, to have a family and you want to be able to support your kids. There could be any number of reasons that you feel like, I can't, I can't give money at this time. And I want to be sympathetic to that because um, I've been in every, every single one of those situations. Uh, I've been in a place where I've wondered, how am I going to pay the bills? I've been in a place where I've been very financially comfortable. I've been in a place where I've been thinking about big goals and I've thought, you know, I can get to those goals faster if I cut back a little bit of my offerings. Um, what I want to say about that is every one of us should be giving generously. Now, generously looks different for each person. And I don't think you can just hear those words and just assume that I'm thinking about something. I think you and I need to talk about that. Um, we need to talk about your individual situation, your individual finances, even things down to like how you budget your money. Um, we have people in our congregation who are experts in money and they will help you not just to budget well, but also to find ways to use your money more wisely. So you are able to more comfortably give generously to the work of the church. Um, so, so if you're, if you're thinking about that, you're thinking about offerings, like just don't try to figure that out in your own head. Um, please come and talk to me about it. Uh, I'm, I, I try my best to be as super sympathetic as I possibly can, uh, because I understand that this is really hard for people and, and money gets really close to our hearts. And, um, and, and so therefore it, it can really be challenging. One last thing I'll say on this is for some people, they think, well, if I give, then I won't have enough money. Um, that will never be the case as long as you are part of Cross of Life. We as a congregation love each other so deeply, at least on a, on a functional organizational level, that we have put into our budget the ability to take care of people who are in need. And I would imagine that if it would get to a place where you would give so much money in your offerings that somehow you weren't able to provide for yourself, either we would figure out a way to provide for you and help you, or we would say, hey, it's okay. You don't have to give that much right now, but let's keep working together. Right? Because we want each person to be able to generously and joyfully give. Not because we need it. I mean, frankly, we don't have enough money to run our budget as it is. And we get money from our church body in order to have a church at all. Like any increased offerings that our people would give to our congregation are not going to raise my salary or put some more money in an investment account that some you know big wig is going to skim off the top. Like none of that's going to happen. In fact, what happens if our, in our offerings increase is more money goes back to our church body to start more churches. And so think about that. And then think about this woman. Like, if money is a hard thing for you to part with, I think you should stop thinking about money and think more about Jesus. What did this woman believe about Jesus? That she had no hope without him. That she had no future without him. That she was destined for hell without him. That she was destined for obscurity in a community that would have hated her without him. But he loved her. And he offered her forgiveness. Not just before, but, but after, too. And that's what motivated her to give. Like, if you're wondering if you can give more, think less about what you give and think more about what Jesus gave. And as you meditate on that and you think about that and you pray about that, if that melts your heart, I think it'll be easier to part with your financial resources. The, the last thing I want to notice with this woman is what Jesus does for her. 
He gives her forgiveness again. Like this woman was already forgiven, right? She, she wouldn't have come and did what she did if she wasn't already forgiven. And yet when she gets there, Jesus says to her again, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. It just makes me meditate on the idea that even Christians, even those who believe, need to hear Jesus' forgiveness regularly. Like if you're a Christian today and you believe that Jesus died for your sins and you're right with God, you need to keep hearing that. But Jesus thought this woman needed to hear that. She was, she was living out her faith in a super obvious way. And Jesus still felt like she needed to hear the word. And so do you. You might have been a Christian for your entire life. You might be really strong in your devotional life at home. You might pray regularly. Hear God's word regularly. You need it. Um, but Jesus says so. And the way to start that is, is obviously to be here every Sunday. Not because we need our statistics to go up or because I feel better about myself, but because Jesus says you need that. You need to hear your sins are forgiven every week. Because how easy it is for us to get bogged down in our guilt, to, to forget how deeply we're loved by Jesus. Just start thinking about ourselves rather than thinking about Jesus. The last thing I want you to do before we close today is to look at Jesus. We've looked at the Simon, we've looked at the woman. I want you to look at Jesus and realize that the way that Jesus looks at this woman, the way he sees her, is how he sees you. He looks at you and he doesn't categorize you. He sees your, your faults, your flaws, the sins you can't forget. He sees the, the mental illness, the physical ailments. He sees the broken relationships, the addictions, the negative thoughts. He sees all of it. And he doesn't tell you to get better, to fix it, to clean it up. He just says, I forgive you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the gospel. There's nothing expected of you. No amount of money, no amount of behavior, no amount of cleaning up your life. It's all free. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Because he was willing to crush far more than a jar of perfume for you. Jesus is willing to be crushed himself. Book of Isaiah tells us that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Jesus on the cross by his wounds that came from the, the, the thorns on his head and the nails in his hands and feet and the spear in his side. We are healed. Jesus is willing to give up everything for you. And he actually doesn't ask anything in return. And so you don't have to. Don't you kind of want to? Don't you kind of want to be generous? Not just with your money, but with your time and your emotions. With being able to see people, to love them for who they are. To reach out to them with this message that you're forgiven. If you know that you've been forgiven much, then you will forgive much. If you know that you have been loved to the stars, you'll be able to love your neighbor. So let me ask you, do you believe that? If you do, then follow this woman's example. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us this example of what faith looks like. As each one of us wrestles with the law on our hearts and the gospel, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us faith to believe and then to run to you in worship. Please give us opportunities to, to love our neighbor out of thanks to you. 
whether that be through our finances, our time, our emotions, our, our ability to listen, to converse with people, to welcome people in who would not normally be welcomed in by society. Give us all those opportunities and give us the strength to carry them out. And I pray that this congregation will be a place where your words to the woman are the resounding message of every single Bible study and every single sermon. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We ask those things in your name. Amen.